Hello and welcome to Game Changers with me, Vicki Abelson, and my guest today is my good friend, James Lee Stanley. Hi, James. Hello, Vicki. You're looking you know, great. Oh, wait. Do you hear that doubling? It's doing it now. Oh, my God. No, I don't hear it. Okay. Oh, thank you. So are you. I'm holding up. I've been pretty lucky, you know. You know, James, you are amazing. I can't find why this is doing this. So uh, what's it doing, Vicky? Okay, here we go. I never know if I am supposed to call you James or James Lee, and I do both. What, do. It, what is proper? Uh, I only use James Lee Stanley because uh, uh, a numerologist told me that I would have the most, uh, the safest spiritual success if I use my full name. She said, if you use, if you use Jim Stanley, you, you have a good chance of going down a very dark road and not getting back. And I said, well, in that case, I'll use my whole name. I mean, you know, and, and she said, uh, that would be the safest way to go. So that's what I did. And my name really is James Lee Stanley, but I go by James. I've been going by James for 50 years. You know, I love that story. I, I don't know. I don't know if you know my friend Zoe Moon. She's a, a an astrologer, and she's given me tips on. I've had tips on things like that. My name used to be Vicky Keats, and she said if you use that name, you will never go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so I changed my name, and I still haven't gone anywhere. But you know what the hell? <laughs> oh my god! Actually, you know uh, what? There's there's really nowhere to go. <laughs> Well, That's the reality thought. of. It. I, I figured this out. Here, here's what we can do: when we're involved in the in the entertainment industry, if you will, if you uh, will, we have a we have a choice all the time of, of being an artist or being a celebrity. Sometimes ah. they combine. You know, sometimes they combine. Neil Young is an artist and a celebrity. You know, mm. but many people are either a celebrity or an artist, and and I realized as as I. You know, they just did a documentary on me, uh, Gary, Gary J. Katz, who did the documentary on, on uh, Badfinger for Apple, and he did Humble Pie and uh, Steve Marriott for or A&M, and he did Manasseh. Anyhow, he came to me and he said he wanted to do a documentary on me, and I, I laughed and said, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, sure, but, you know, my parents are already gone, so who are you going to sell it to, you know? And, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but he thought there was a story there, and, and then, I'll, I'll show it to you. It's... Uh, what did I do with it? What did you do with it, James? Oh, here it is. It's called uh, the opening act, and and uh, we're we've got it in like about fifteen film festivals now, and we're waiting to see what what happens next. And and uh, anyhow, while doing the the uh, documentary, we did it for two years, and I got every famous friend I ever had to <laughs> to do an interview, you know. But in any event, going through my life, I realized that. I always, always opted for uh, for being an artist. I, I kind of assumed, foolishly, that uh, <laughs> if, if you work as an artist, the celebrity will come. But it turns out that that's a that's a separate, uh, almost a separate career. You got to work at that really hard. And I have never worked at it. I just have worked at songwriting and singing and recording and performing. You know, and uh, I know. so. I get so and and you know you've been doing what you've been doing all this time. You've always been you, so far as since I've known you, you've been uh, so. I've only been you. me. <laughs> yeah, but that's that. You know how tricky that is, because most people aren't. <laughs> you know. 
Yeah, I, I think that's true. And, you know, they always say that if you do what you love, the money will follow. Uh, that has yet to happen to me, James. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not, I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> no, that, that is, that there's a, I don't know what, I don't know what's going on with that. But I love the fact that you listen to the spiritual wisdom and uh, use that name. And it, it really suits you, though. It really does. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm kind of used to it after 50 years, you know. So tell me, how did the documentary come to be? How did now Cats was my maiden name, by the way, when I was born. So maybe no we're idea. related. How so? How did um, how did Gary find? How did Gary come to you? What was the circumstance? Uh, ev evidently, uh, uh, Gary was was a fan of my music, uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, and because his name is Gary Katz, he's also a musician. He put together a little band, and uh, he came up here to Bear Valley Springs, where I live. Uh huh. And and uh, one night his band played at the was going to play at the country club, and and I saw the name Gary Katz, so I emailed him and I said, "Are you the Gary Katz that is my favorite record producer of all the Steely Dan records?" Because Gary Katz produced the Steely Dan. He said, "No, I'm Gary J Katz." Ha ha. Oh, that's right. But I do play music, and then I, and that's when I found that he was playing, and I said, "Well, I'll come down to the club and hear you." So I went down there and heard a set, and uh, and sat in with him. And about a week later, he called up and he said, you know what, man, I, I've been doing a lot of Googling you and stuff. And he said, I'd like to do a documentary on you. And I, I said, wow, <laughs> I can't, I can't imagine who would care, but you know, I'm very, oh. so then we started and, uh, and it took about two years. And, and once the pandemic hit, uh, people like Stephen Wright and, uh, uh, Mike Kappas from from Rosebud Music and Fred Bolander from from uh, uh, Monterey Peninsula Artists. These are like huge mm -hmm. agencies. They actually did their, their selfie interviews and sent them to us because Aww. no one. They were so sweet. Everybody was so sweet to me. You know, Tom Robbins did one with it just on his phone. <laughs> you know, fantastic. So we'd have it. it was pretty remarkable that uh, it, it made me feel great. You know, to to know that I had. Uh, well, I, I haven't got the, the large bucks. I do have a, uh, a lot of peer respect and a lot of dear yes, friends, do. you know, in the business. So, so is it primarily a COVID selfie documentary? No, no, not at all. Uh, uh, we, we had pictures and we had a year of shooting before the, the COVID started. So there's just a couple of interviews that are, you know, that are phone interviews. And it starts, I mean, this is, you know, story of my whole life and the, uh, and how I, I mean, I started recording it at, I think, 16, and, and I've done it my whole life. And then there's, uh, he said, I want to hear a lot of these stories. So there's a whole lot of little anecdotes, you know, that have happened to me through the years, opening up for Art Garfunkel or, or Chicago or, or Stephen Wright or Robin Williams or Bill Cosby or Nicolette Larson or Bonnie Raitt. I mean, you know, I, I open up for everybody you can imagine, from Ed McMahon to the... Persuasions, you know. No, I mean, you didn't open up for Ed McMahon. Yeah, I did in some place, Moscow, Idaho. What the hell did Ed McMahon do as an as a headliner? Uh, I don't know. I was a single man then, so I left with somebody <laughs> after I played. I, <laughs> that I, sounds... used, I used to be easy, Vicky. <laughs> I can't even imagine what the hell Ed McMahon did for an hour and a half to entertain people. Well, you know, I remember the, uh, there was one of the guys from. Uh, <laughs> Sure, just weird. One of the comedians from that show, Barney Miller, he had curly hair and glasses. I forget his name, uh, but I did I did a show with him, and he, 
I said, how long do you want me to play? And he said, how about 20 minutes? And I said, well, okay. So I did 20 minutes. He did 45 minutes. That was the whole show. So people don't feel, <laughs> you know, when I, do, when I do a concert by myself, it takes about three hours, you know? Yeah. One thing, I've got 35 albums, and if anybody asks for anything, I, I like to be able to do any song from any album, you know? So. Oh, okay. Well, this is uh, Steve, Lin not Steve. It wasn't Steve Landisberg, was it? Yes. Oh, it is. Okay, Linda, thank you. Uh, a few people came up with it. Carolyn. Um, yeah, yeah Steve Landisberg was it. That, yeah, one was, of the few people was, I never got to be friends with. <laughs> is that true? He was very funny back in the day. Yeah, he was eh? a funny dude, but he wasn't available. Uh -huh. I actually waited on him at Maxwell's Plum in the 70s. He was he lived across <laughs> the street. He was very funny. All right. So you said any you'll play anything at any time from any. You know, I'm not going to call out a request. I'm going to let you play what you plan. But but how about bringing us in with some music? Let's let's sure, let's sure. Let's actually, I have a brand new song. Uh, you know, your new song is your new baby. So I'd like to start with that one if it's all right. I would love that, James. Let me let me uh, plug in. I, I accidentally left the guitar plug in since our three o'clock sound check. So I was afraid the battery <laughs> would go. So I've been uh -huh. unplugging it when I'm not using it. You hear that? I do. Okay, this goes there, this goes there, and that goes there. And they say she keeps her heart in amber. And you can look, but you can't touch a well-known secret as clear as crystal. A diamond in the dust, she keeps her heart in amber, and amber knows anyone is watching and amber knows not a soul can see where she's been or where she's going is she chained or is she free she keeps her heart in amber She keeps her heart in amber If there are stars in her skies How could she see them From where her heart lies Even if all of those stars were in her eyes Would she even free them? And once you know she keeps her heart in amber, even though it's hidden in plain sight, once you find it, you cannot keep it. 
Won't you steal the darkness from the night? She keeps her heart in amber. gentle uh uh exit from that song there james well, you know like, what? I, what? I, I forgot the last verse so i just stopped <laughs> <laughs> actually i just remembered it goes uh over time our cries become a whisper and over time our skin becomes so thin and over time our hearts become bone china we break so easily then we keep our hearts in amber we keep our hearts in amber That's the real end. <laughs> we break so easily then. Uh, what a beautiful song. What is that called, James Lee? It's called uh, Hearts in Amber. Hearts in Amber. Beautiful song. Thank you. Um, I'm writing that down so I don't forget. Uh, okay, so <laughs> wait, you were going to say something. What? No, no, I just said good. Oh, yes. Yeah, so writing it down. I'm writing it down because I, I love that. Yeah, so, I got the idea from that. Uh, you ever see those pictures of, of little insects that are inside of amber from like a sure. million years ago uh-huh. uh, when i saw them i i just immediately thought about the fact that uh, all of us protect our hearts in such a uh, cautious way you know i mean to fall in love is to is to take away the protection is to open your heart and most of us have a hard time doing that that's what i got the idea of hearts in amber you know and i thought I that most that. of us most of us protect our hearts most of the time so you've been married for quite some time. How did how how long have you been married, James Lee? Uh, this is my third wife, my favorite of the bunch, and uh, <laughs> it's it's been at least thirty five years, I think. Okay, so those first two marriages, I'm guessing, were kind of short lived. Two years and six months to the day, twice. Get out of here! Exactly the same amount of time, two times. Yeah, I seem to have an ex- expiration date when I was younger. <laughs> I I don't know. <laughs> And how did you meet your current, how did you meet the wife that matters? Oh, uh, you know what? Uh, she was working with a man named Matthew McCauley, who, was, who produced uh, America. Mm-hmm. And Matthew was producing a band called the Coyote Sisters, which was uh, Renee Armand and Leah Kunkel and uh, one other girl whose name slips my mind momentarily. Okay. Anyhow, uh, he was producing them and they were playing live at, uh, at my place in Santa Monica. Remember Matt Kramer's joint? So I went down there, Stephen Bishop and I went down there to see, uh, to see her, to see Leah, because she's a dear friend of both of ours. Mm-hmm. And I met Evelina that night and I, I asked her out. I remember the next day I went to the next, when I went to pick her up for the date, uh, 
she was staying at, at Matthew's house. She just graduated from college and she came to America just to get away from Holland. She's Dutch. And she was working as, as his au pair. And so I, I felt a little strange, you know, but she was, you know, 23 years old. So it wasn't like she was 16 or something. But in any event, <laughs> I walked in the door and Matthew's wife said, oh, James, wouldn't it be amazing if you fell in love and got married? And, and I said, Tammy, relax. It's our first date, you know, back off. Wow. Except we fell in love and got married. <laughs> how, so how long, how long after your two year, six month second marriage was this? Uh, let's see, 13 years. Oh, uh, okay. So you had time to breathe and. Oh and... yeah. I did more than breathing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was, uh, I, t I replaced my, my second wife with every other woman I ever met. Wow. You know, I just, uh, I just became quite enamored. Uh, I, I, I distracted, I guess it was, is a better word. Well, that's yeah. good that you sold all those wild, you sowed all those wild oats so that you were kind of ready to do. Uh, yeah, as it, as it happened, that's probably where I got the, uh, the HPV, you know, that the cancer virus. Which impacted you how? Well, it, it turns out you get HPV mostly from oral genital contact. And, uh, yes. and as reflecting back, I realized that I, I don't think I missed anyone. So I, I statistically, I was, uh, I was due, you know, and it turned out that I, I had a tumor on the back of my tongue, a huge thing. And, and so they had to go down with a robot and slice that out. And, uh, they had to take margins around it to make sure there was no cancer vestiges in there anywhere. I was fortunate and it was on top of my tongue instead of in my tongue or under my tongue like I was with Peter Tork or with Michael Douglas, you know, uh, in any event, and, and Timothy Schmidt too. Uh, they cut it out and then they said they thought it was wise to go down my throat and they cut, cut a big flap here and they took out 62 lymph nodes and they said, you probably won't sing for a year. And I said, well, you know, I, I've got a show. This was like November the 8th. And I said, well, I have a show on January the 4th and I'm not canceling it. And, and I did it and it's on the internet. I did it at Kulak's. I sang for an hour and came out. Just I remember great. when, okay. So how did you discover that this was going on? Really weird, Vicki. Uh, I was get, having my, because of my advanced age, I was having another colonoscopy and uh, my wife said, why don't you get a, endoscopy while you're at it so it was like a musician on a spit there you know <laughs> camera at each end and, uh, and when they went down my throat they annoyed that uh, that tumor and then i started having problems which i'd never had before wait you mean they didn't see it they no, just no the camera they, they shoot the camera down into your stomach uh, right and they weren't really looking at the base of my tongue i mean i don't think anybody even had the camera on at that point they were just were sliding it in in right. any event, if they had not irritated it, then I would never have known. And at some point, I would have had such a big tumor that they would have had to take out my tongue or something. So it was it was ridiculously fortuitous that she wanted me to have a uh, endoscopy. And so I went to the doctor, and I, and he said, "Well, you you have we you have a dark spot. I think it's cancer." And I said, "So how long do I?" Because Peter had just died, and you know, I, uh, Peter Tork had just died in uh, in February. And I said, "Well, how long?" you know, how long do I have? And he said, well, I don't know, let's go. So they gave me a whole bunch of tests and then I had the operation and then 
I've been going every three months and there's been no return. I've been really blessed. And I didn't have to have uh, radiation or chemo. I, I well, lost my hair on my own. <laughs> <laughs> how, I did how it long, myself. How long, was, how long ago was this that you had the surgery, James? Uh, November of 2019. It's absolutely miraculous. And you were singing two months later. I was. But you know what? Uh, I, d- I discovered that the, uh, the scar tissue began to harden. And it turns out you use all kinds of muscles in your neck when you sing, uh, of which I was unaware. I've sung all my life, so I didn't, I remember taking a lesson, so I didn't really know how it worked. I just knew right. that it did work, you know? Right. And, uh, and it started stiffening up. So I went to a, a, a therapist, and he gave me some, some exercises to do. But truthfully, my voice over the past two years has been my my range started to get limited and and my control wasn't wasn't really and the pandemic didn't help because you don't sing and practice like you do when you're on stage you know? of course so i had a year and a half of practicing here in the studio but not doing that real projecting showbiz thing but two weeks ago i started back on the road i went up and i played uh, played in mendocino and i played in uh, sacramento and in uh, oakland and then I came home for a couple of days and then I went out and played in Ojai. So I did four dates in about seven days. Sunday, I played the Sculptera Vineyard and Vicky, it was unbelievable. For the first time since my operation, my voice just opened up. I sang, I, I sang everything I've ever, I, I could do anything I've ever done with my voice again, finally. And wow. then today I didn't even warm up. This is just I was going to say, you sounded perfect. You sounded exactly like you, exactly as I've always heard you sound. It's I incredible. Know, I don't know how it happened, but it, but it, it opened up. And, I, and now, I mean, I, I was actually afraid because when I did the shows in Ojai where I sang, I mean, I sang well, but it wasn't effortless. My singing has always been effortless. And, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, I had to like watch every note. Going for high notes was like walking on thin ice. You put a foot out there. Can I stand? You know, will this work? You wow. know what I mean? But, and so I thought, Last weekend, two weekends ago, I thought, you know what? If I can't do everything that I did with my voice, I'm going to stop doing it. I don't want to be one of those guys that goes out there and and can't do what he did, you know, and sticks around anyhow. You know, the the, the guy right. that stays after the party's over. I, you know, I oh yeah, do that. we've all <laughs> seen some of those guys. Oh yeah, but then <laughs> yeah. Sunday, just a couple of days ago. I sang my ass off. It was so fun wow. to be me, you know, very gratifying. It was so fun to be me. <laughs> <laughs> well, <it was. laughs> I love it. You well, you sounded spectacular just now, and people Thanks. are saying on the thread that your your voice is so. You have just an incredible voice. It was wonderful. I have a nice voice. My whole family does. My sisters are the real talent in the family. You should hear them sing. They're unbelievable. Okay, so tell me, tell us about your family. I, I remember some of your background, but uh, where did you grow up, James? And were your parents musical? And- uh, no, my father uh, played the piano and, and wrote poetry, and my mother sang all the time. And my grandfather actually had a band and played the piano and play, he wow. played a- any instrument. And and uh, so I did come from a musical family, and all my sisters sing. And my sister Robin was in expose for a couple of years that that girl group, right? Uh, and my sister Sandra uh, went way deep into the church uh, and became a gospel singer, and actually. Vicky, she actually goes to Israel to save Jews for Jesus. I, I, I tried to point out to her how silly that was, but she d- didn't get it, you know. So, uh, <laughs> and actually, all my sisters have become uh, very, very religious and very right wing, and very, uh, they all support Trump. So I haven't actually spoken to them since the election. 
Where, where did you grow up, James? Virginia. Well, hello. What do you expect? I mean, this is... Yeah, but I mean, I was born in Pennsylvania, and then we lived in Africa, and I've lived in North Carolina, I've lived in Texas, and I've lived in, mostly in California. Most of my life I spent here, you know? As a child as well? No, no, I, I came oh. here... Uh, I came here to go to the Defense Language Institute because I, it was in the Air Force and they decided I would be a Chinese linguist. So I had to go up to Monterey and study Chinese. You remember, we, were, we did that thing at the Henry Miller. Uh, yes, we did. Yeah, Cal, what was that? Henry Miller Library um, in, in Monterey. Big Sur. In Big Sur, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That was really fun. That was really fun. And it was so great because you had that connection. Mike Nesmith, for those of you that don't know, pr produced that show. And James Lee was partners with Peter Tork for many years. He did three yeah, albums I'm, together. I met Peter way before the Monkees. Okay, so how did you meet Peter? Met him at a club in Virginia Beach. He was playing the banjo behind a, uh, a trio of uh, three black guys who had left the Harry, Harry Belafonte singers and become their own group. And they hired Peter to play the banjo, and they hired uh, Lance Wakeley to play the guitar. So the two of them were the backing band, you know. And, and, Peter and so I you hit guys it off instantly, and we we started singing. They were there for two weeks, and every Monday the club had an open mic night, and they got there, played the first week, the second week before they uh, they started. There was open mic night, and Peter and I worked up an act and played that, and that was in 1964. Matter of fact, wow. we saw Hard Day's Night together. At, oh. At, my God! Virginia Beach. We came out of there so electrified, you know. That's so crazy. So you were already friends when he auditioned for the Monkees, and oh yeah, we were we were friends for yeah three or four years by then. So yeah. he had this massive superstardom, and yet you guys stayed musically connected as well as friends. Well, you know, it's funny because of the Air Force, I was sent to Taiwan, and I truly missed the entire monkeys phenomenon and and so when i came back i mean i knew that peter had gotten famous in the monkeys but i didn't have any monkeys records and i didn't ever see the show and and uh and i really was i have to tell you it was his death that brought home to me how famous he was because what? he's been my friend for so long that i i didn't realize that he's like I mean, if I'd known how world famous he was, I would have put a lot, I produced his solo album. I would have put a lot more famous people on that record if I'd known he knew him. You know, I, I just, I was just helping my pal when I made the record. I did, I didn't know that he, you know, Steve Stills, I mean, you know, all these people loved, Steve Stills is the one that got him his interview. He said, he called him twice, go down Get there. Get out of here. Yeah, Stephen went and, uh, and auditioned and they turned him down because they didn't like the way his teeth were or something. And so he called and he and Peter had the same hairdo and the same, uh, mutton chopped sideburns. Right. So he called Peter, who was washing dishes at the Golden Bear, and he said, uh, Peter, you should go up and audition for this. Peter said, yeah, okay. And then he didn't. So Stephen called him again and said, man, I'm telling you, you got a shot here. Go up there and do it. So Peter went up there, auditioned, and got the gig. So wow. anyhow, I came, I came back from Taiwan, and I came down here, and I went to I came down here to go to school because uh, LACC had a fantastic music program and it was, I could afford it, you know? So I, I started going to school and I played McCabe's and Peter came. But now he was a math teacher in Venice or something. And I, you know, I didn't, I just didn't really get it, you know? And then years later when the monkeys reformed and, and he started playing uh, and everybody put out an album. I mean, they all had solo albums. And I said, right. hey, why don't you have a solo album? And he, you know, he was such a, a modest dude. He, he said, well, you know, no one asked me. And I said, Peter, I have a studio. <laughs> I have a record label. 
I have national distribution. I'll tell you what. Let's make a record. Let's try to sell it to somebody. And if you know we can't get the money we want for it, we can put it out our own label. So I mean, we can't lose. And so we made a record together called Stranger Things Have Happened, his only first real solo album. Right. And, uh, and as we were finishing it, he said, James, I don't want to shop the record. I want to put it on your label. So Peter signed to my label just out of yeah. friendship. There was no yeah. advance, you know? As a matter of fact, wow. I charged him to produce them. <laughs> wow, what a yeah, lovely he, story. He was a great man. And I have to tell you, when we were on the road, we would go and every place we played was sold out. And uh, I booked all the dates because, I don't know, because I've always booked the dates. Right. So, so I booked all the dates for the two of us. And he demanded that I take, he wanted me to take 20% for booking. And I said, Peter, no. You have to take something, you have to take something. So I said, okay, I'll take 5%. So I took 5% for booking the dates. We would play somewhere. They came to see Peter, not me. You know, I, I mean, I, I do a fine show. I can open for anybody and I always hold my own. That's not a problem. But the fact is that all the people came and all the people paid to see Peter. Peter demanded that we split the door. You know, and, and because we were partners on his album, he's, we split that too. So I, I made twice as much money as he made on those tours, you know? And he would sometimes, he would go on a monkey's tour and come off it. I'd pick him up at the airport in the Dodge Stratus I rented. And then we would like share a hotel room with two beds and, and I would drive everywhere. And just, you know, four days before he was getting his guitars carried around and he was, you know, had a tour book and all this stuff. He was just the best friend I ever had, you know? Wow, that's so, I, I was fortunate to, get to meet Peter uh, and uh, before a monkey show, I don't know, eight years ago, nine years ago uh, or something. And he was so lovely. He was already sick. So now he had the same, he had throat. I, I know, well, he, had, he had uh, something called uh, sub, is it called subcutaneous? He, he had the cancer under his tongue. See, I had mine on the top. He okay. had his under and they had to, they had to literally open his face up and go in under his jaw and was and it changed the way he, he started talking a little bit like like dish you know because uh because they'd had to cut his tongue anyhow he, he had he fought it for 10 or 11 years and then uh i remember he called me in the fall of 2018 and he said james this 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 radiation isotope thing isn't working so i'm going to stop all the treatment and i said well what does that mean pal and he said that means i hope i make christmas Wow. And I said, Jesus. So we talked a lot, you know, and, he, and, and Christmas Day, I remember we were talking and he said, well, I'm shooting for my birthday now, which I think is February the 9th. And I believe he, he made it to February 19th and, or something around then, because maybe I talked to him on the 19th. Sometimes around the 19th or 20th, mm -hmm. he passed away. But I talked to him within, you know, 36 hours of his leaving the planet. Mm -hmm. And I remember he got on the phone and I said, Peter, what's happening? And he said, I'm just waiting, mm. you know, and then he slipped away. Yeah, that's the that's the crappy part of it being seventy five is that uh, that all your friends are they're disappearing, you know. Well, I'm so glad that you have a different story to tell. And did they Me really too. tie what happened to you to HPV that you got when you were a, a dog? Uh, I got when I was a what? A dog, when you were a dog, when you were oh, a dog, dogging yes, around. <laughs> yes, yes. When I was, when I was spontaneous and, uh, and full of reciprocity. 
Wow. Um, well, aren't we lucky that <laughs> oh, I wonder you know what did Peter get his the same way? Jesus Christ. Uh, I think that all of us did, you know, I, I remember, and I was really careful if, if anybody had even a, a hint of uh, something, I would, you know, I would abstain. So I thought I kind of got through the whole thing unscathed, but it turns out, nope. <laughs> There's no free lunch, Vicki, no I, free lunch. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> Um, wait, you were just going to show me something. You went, oh, I and was. You start okay, uh, what do you uh, Dan Navarro and I have done a new album. Uh, years ago, I, I did an album called All Wood and Stones with John Batdorf. I took a bunch Let's of Let's talk about how did, how did that original idea come to you to do this? It was ridiculous. I was at a wedding in Topanga Canyon, mm -hmm. and the, the groom, who was a friend of mine and, and knew I was a musician, said, James, go and sing something. And there were two other musicians, George Merrill, who wrote How Will I Know and I Want to Dance with Somebody, and uh, Rod McDonald, who's a wonderful uh, folk singer, topical folk singer, he used to be a journalist for The Times or something. He's really good. Oh, Anyhow, wow. the three of us went up on stage. When we got there, we realized that all three of us only sing what we write. So <laughs> it was like, yeah, what are we going to do? And then Rod started uh, Ruby Tuesday. He said, do you know Ruby Tuesday? And I said, I know the chorus. And he said, okay. So he starts playing it. And uh, George has a really high voice. So George did the high harmony. I did the low harmony. And we sang three-part harmony on Ruby Tuesday. Wow. The wedding party went nuts. I mean, it was like, it was like Ozzy and Harriet. They came running to the stage, you know. It was so goofy. And on the way home from the wedding, I said, you know, Evelina, I don't think anybody's ever heard the Rolling Stones done you know, the way I do things, gently and acoustically and harmonies. I said, I'm going to make an album like that. So I made an album called All Wood and Stones with John Batdorf. And uh, Timothy Schmidt sang on it, and Paul Barrere and, and Peter played on it, and uh, Lawrence Juber from Wing, you know, a bunch of great people played on right. it. Right. And, uh, and then uh, my pal Gene Vano was going to have lunch with John Densmore from The Doors, and I, I had John's book, Writers on the Storm, and I said, Gene, can you take this book to John and just ask him to sign his name? And Gene said, why don't you just come and meet him yourself? And I went, okay, you know. And, and I went out to lunch and met John Densmore. And I've got my book under, under my arm. And I go, hi, James Lee Stanley. And I'm thrilled to meet him, you know. Hi. And he goes, man, James Lee Stanley, I love what you did to the Stones. Sit down. So, so I sat down and, and uh, we, we became friends. And then during the lunch, he said, you know, if you do the doors like you did the stones, I'll play on it. So I did all wooden doors and both uh, John and Robbie Krieger, the, uh, the guitar player who actually wrote Light My Fire, they both played on it. And the same, you know, Zeitgeist Renegades, Timothy Schiff from the Eagles, Paul Barrett from Little Feet, Lawrence Huber from Wings, Peter Tork from the Monkees. Everybody on the record was famous except me. <laughs> And then John and I did All Wooden Stones too, and then Dan Navarro, who wrote We Belong, the hit for uh, Pat Benatar. One of my very good friends. Yeah, and a beautiful man and, a, and an unbelievable singer, I'm telling you. Yes. He's such a great singer. Anyhow, he came to me and he said, James, I want to do one of those. I want to do Led Zeppelin. And I said, I, I only know two Led Zeppelin songs, Stairway to Heaven and Whole Lot of Love. I said, I don't know the catalog. So he went out and bought the entire catalog, mailed me all the CDs sent me files. So we, we decided to do all, all wood and lead, which I finished. Uh, I did a, what I thought was the final mix the night before my operation, because I wanted to get it done because I was afraid if I died, it wouldn't be finished. So I, oh my God. I worked until midnight on like the 7th of November, you know, mixing this album. So I got it all together just in case I didn't make it. 
wow. except I made it. So then we did some more work on it and we remixed it and it came out a month ago and it's getting spectacular reviews. I have not heard it yet. I am so excited. I'm going to mail it to you. I'm so excited. Uh, James, where can people get your music as we're talking about it? Oh, it's really easy. JamesLeeStanley.com or, or every single streaming service that exists. Although I don't, I don't encourage people to go there because they do such a screw job on musicians, you know? Yeah. I mean, literally, I, I used to get checks every quarter for, and I'm not famous, but I used to get thousands of dollars in the, in the mail every quarter. Since the advent of Spotify and Pandora and like that, mm-hmm. I'm getting checks for a hundred, hundred and ten dollars. Oh, you know, yeah, wow. and, and for just as many plays. But now they're playing; they're paying you like, you know, one half yeah. of a mil for every. It's insane. The problem is that they they say they're giving seventy percent of the profit to uh, to artists, mm-hmm. but what they're not saying is that they are the ones who decide where the profit line is. You know, what is what do you mean pay, by that? I mean that. If if a hundred thousand dollars comes in, right. they take ninety thousand dollars from it. To do, by example, I'm not these aren't the exact right, right. Things. Of course, but they take ninety thousand dollars to cover their expenses, and then what's left is the profit, ten thousand dollars, and then that's what they pay. To, they call us the content providers, and they pay every musician and recording artist in the world out of the tiny bit that's left after they skim everything off the top. Yikes! Yeah, I find them uh, despicable. So the best place people can go is James, jamesleestanley.com. That would be nice. Or Apple, and Apple, Apple pays well still. That's yeah, that's, I understand that. So James, we've been talking about all wood and doors, stones, lead. Uh, would you play an all wood and something for us now? Oh, sure. Sure. Great. Uh, yeah. I, I did that without warning. So. Yeah, I just, I, I can. I can do it. I know you can. Let's swim to the moon. Let's climb through the tide. Penetrate the evening that the city sleeps too high. Let's swim out tonight, love. It's our time to try. Park beside the ocean on a, a moonlight drive, moonlight drive. Let's swim to the moon Let's climb through the tide Surrender to the waiting world The daylight ties are high Nothing left open Nothing to decide Slip into that river On our moonlight drive Moonlight drive Let's swim to the moon Let's climb through the tide 
you reach your hand to hold me, but I cannot be your guide. Easy, I love you as I watch you glide, falling through the forest on our moonlight drive, moonlight drive. Take a little ride down, down, down by the ocean side. We're gonna get real close, get real close. Yeah, we're gonna get real tight down, down, down by the ocean side. Moonlight Ride from uh, The Doors. Oh, uh, uh, why can't I hear you anymore? Sorry, that was me. I, I muted myself oh. so I wouldn't disturb your song. I was <laughs> clapping uh, furiously. I, I got to see you and Cliff do All Wooden Doors. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Cliff is another great singer. You know, both Cliff and Dan, when I was doing the records, uh, they came to their vocal parts and then my wife came in the studio and I played her what they sang and she said, Ooh, you got your work cut out for you. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Uh, you, you are, you, you are. No, they're they're really great singers. Those two guys, you know, just great. I've yeah. actually known Cliff for about almost 40 years. Uh, that's kind of yeah. crazy too. Um, so, okay. So you've got these fabulous all wood and lead doors. I'm missing one. Yep. Wood, uh, all, uh, um, all wood and stones, stones. All wood and doors, all wood and lead. Okay. Yeah, there's four in the series. I'm going to do a couple more, I think, uh, just because I, I really enjoy. I mean, I, you know, I, I have done 35 albums and I've written most all the songs for them. And, and it's, it's just fun to do some stuff that I didn't write because, because other writers go places that I normally don't go. You know, I mean, we each have our own unique uh, compositional voice, you know. Absolutely. Uh, so for the, uh, somebody asked, Tony asked, is your voice, was your voice your first instrument? Where, where, how did music come to you? How did uh, you come to music? Yeah, I, I, well, I always sang. There's a photograph of me two years old in my underpants sitting on the edge <laughs> of the stage watching my grandfather play. Uh, he, he, he could play the mandolin and the banjo and the guitar and he played the piano like Chico Marx and he sang and he was funny, you know. Wow. He had a little band. Whenever there were parties, the band would play. And, and whenever we got together, they would play. I just always, always did music. And I know in, in the third grade, 
I was the star of the show. I, I sang the Banana Boat song in the, in the school assembly, and I, and I had a drum made out of a, one of those uh, Quaker Oats uh, cardboard, you know, containers that are around, and, I mean, cylindrical. Mm-hmm. And so I made that look like a drum, and I wore a little hat, and I sang, I did that. And then uh, I was also uh, uh, the star of the school play. I played Davy Crockett. All right, then. Yeah, so I, I've just always done it, you know, always. And how about playing guitar? Lessons? Uh, no, I, my, I started playing the guitar. I started playing ukulele, actually, uh, wow. because I was so little. And my uncle gave me ukulele, and I played it. And then he bought another one. And he, he actually bought a beautiful baritone Favilla ukulele, which I have on the wall right over there. I've, I've had it since I was 12 years old. And uh, yeah, I had to have it put back together. It's about a hundred dollar ukulele, and I had to spend three hundred dollars having them put it back together. But I thought I don't care. It's you know, this was the thing that started me. Wow. And then when I was fourteen, I got a guitar, and uh, by the time I was sixteen, I was, you know, playing. And the Beatles came out, and I mean, I did folk music because that's what was happening. And and then uh, the Beatles came out and tore the top of my head off, and uh, I, you know. They, Before the Beatles, who were your early influences? Who were your folk influences? Oh, you know, all, all the typical. I mean, I I was uh, born in 46, so I, I kind of missed the Weavers. I know I was aware of their their songs because they were huge folk artists in the 50s, but mm-hmm. I wasn't really into music when I was four years old, you know, and five years old. So in 1960, I met Karen Edwards, and she liked the Kingston Trio, so I, I uh, started liking the Kingston Trio and then the Limelighters and then in the the Chad Mitchell Trio and the Brothers Four and the, and Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and you know all those folks Tom Rush, sure. I, I bought all their recordings and I learned all their songs, and by the time I was eighteen, I was, I was making a living, doing music, and then, okay, so uh, doing covers at the beginning, I assume. Yeah, I didn't write any songs then. And uh, so when did you start writing? Well, I started writing when I was sixteen and got a record deal. They, uh, the guy that produced uh, the records, a man named Frank Guida. He produced Gary U.S. Bonds. I said, hey, hey, hey. Frank wrote that song and produced it. And A Night with Daddy G. And uh, If You Want to Be Happy with Jimmy Soul. He, he had all these black acts and, and my sisters and I. Uh, and when because the Beatles came out, he said, write me a song, James. So I, I wrote him some dreadful, awful song. And... Uh, Wait, so you were a family act? So when you first were signed, you were a family band? Yeah, we were, my sisters and I sing harmonies. You know, we always sang. We sang in the car, you know, just the way every family does on trips. And, sure. And, and I had, I've always had kind of a musical gift in that I actually would sing the parts that I wanted my sisters to sing. Like we would, I would learn the melody and I'd say, okay, this is your part. And I would sing her part. I could just always hear the parts. So I just would teach them the parts, you know? So we always sang three-part harmony. It wow. probably sounded more like the Andrews sisters than anybody else, but <laughs> but then what, you know, I, when folk music really got rolling, I wanted to, I didn't want to be an act with my sisters. I wanted to be a, you know, a cool guy. Yeah. Singing with a 10-year-old girl is not cool, you know? I mean, so how did you branch out on your own? Just, uh, well, I got thrown out of high school, so I went down to the beach. Got a wait, 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 wait. Why did you get thrown out of high school? I don't know. I, I, I was such a nice person. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, there were a couple of problems. One, 
uh, was that I moved from Pennsylvania to Virginia when I was 14. Mm -hmm. So I, and also I was 4'11 when I entered uh, uh, junior, uh, high school. So I was, what? I was the new kid in town. I was a Yankee and I was a dwarf, you know? So, so I got mercilessly uh, uh, teased and, and uh, harassed by particularly the, the jocks. I actually did get locked in my locker once. Uh, they put me in there. In any event, uh, I, I just, I didn't get along with people. I didn't like them and I didn't like, I didn't like them. I mean, well, you know, I remember in the ninth grade, I, I walk into the first class, I sit down, the teacher says, uh, Stanley. And I said, here, and he said, here, what? And I said, uh, here I am. And he goes, here I am. What? And hey. I said, here, here I am in class. You know, I'm thinking, what does this asshole want from me? You know, and uh, and he said, you don't say sir at home. Don't you respect your father? And I said, oh. I said, yeah, I respect my father. I respect anybody that earns it. So that kind of set up the the dialogue. And they wow. just always they just always thought I was a troublemaker. And also the fact that he said I didn't respect my father because I didn't call the teacher sir it pissed me off. You know, so I I I came down on him uh, and uh, and I said, yeah, I respect anybody who earns it. You know, and I think that uh, the inference be he hadn't earned it yet. Right. And uh, so then they just kept thinking that I was trouble. Mm -hmm. So no matter what I said, it was, you know, I mean, I actually got removed for running in the hall, you know, because I was doing it constantly. And uh, <laughs> mostly because I was being chased by big jocks that wanted to put me in my locker. <laughs> but in any did event. You, did you not I, do sports in, in high school? Uh, I only got my letter because uh, Karen Edwards would only go out with guys that had a letter sweater. So I. So you, know, you lettered. What did you letter in? Well, I went out for football, but they said I was too tiny. So I went to <laughs> soccer and got uh, played soccer. And, you know, wow. and nobody came to the games. Not one person came to those games. <laughs> but you got anyway. a letter sweater. So that's all that matters. Yeah, right. And then Karen Edwards didn't want to go out with me anyhow. So it was kind of a waste of time. Oh, so, okay. So you got thrown out of high school, but you did go to college? You oh did? yeah, well, I went, yeah. when I got, thrown out, I got thrown out my senior year, uh, okay. in the spring of my senior year. So I went down to the beach, Virginia Beach, with a fake ID, worked in a bar uh, called The Shadows. And that's where I met Peter Tork and Cass Elliott from the Mamas and Papas and Dennis Doherty and, and wow. John Phillips and Henry Diltz. And uh, wow. I, I met everybody. I mean, I met all the p people that, that became famous from the Southern California thing. Jim McGuinn, uh, actually Roger McGuinn. I met them all when I was 16 and 17 in Virginia Beach. What, and, what were and, they doing uh, in Virginia Beach? They, the, the Shadows was a folk, really, it was a 600 seat folk club. Uh -huh. and, and so they had all those national acts come through. So I, I met everybody and then I just stayed friends with them. You know, when I got to LA, Cass, Cass arranged my first recording session at uh, TTG. She, wow. she called the, them. I, I thought she paid for it, but I realized now she probably just called up and said, look, I've got a friend, give him some time, you know, and they did. So I went down and recorded some songs. Wow. In any event, I, I've just known all these people all that time, you know? Yeah. Henry and I have been friends since 1964. Wow. And Peter and I, and, and, uh, I wasn't friends with John, but I was acquainted with John and Michelle, you know, I haven't even, I, I had dinner with Michelle about gosh, 15 years ago. I haven't seen her since, you know? Uh, but, but Cass, I was friends with, and Leah, her sister, Leah Kunkel, you know, we've been friends since college. Wow.
So I just was connected to all those people. The sad part was that I was in the Air Force in basic training when I heard Monday Monday on the on the TV, and I went in the day room at basic training, and there was there was Cass and Denny, and John and Michelle singing that song, and I thought I'm standing there with in an Air Force uniform, and they're on Dick Clark's bandstand, you know, and I thought. I think I may not have thought this through. (laughs) (laughs) So you enlisted, I'm guessing. Well, I I enlisted because everybody, all the men in my family on both sides joined the service first. And I knew that I wanted to go to college. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and and we were really poor. There was no, there was no chance of anybody paying for anything. So I needed the GI Bill to go to college, you know? So I, I joined the Air Force, four years of Air Force, four years of college, you know? What did you do in the Air Force? I was a Chinese linguist. That's right. So you do you still speak Chinese? Holy shit. You could be a spy. You could have been a, a Cold War You know, War I actually spy. contacted the State Department because I, I love to go to China and do a tour. I mean, I'd have to take a refresher course because I haven't spoken Chinese since I dated Eileen Wan in college, you know? Wow. Wow. Okay. So, so you did the air force, you came back, you did college. Or did you ever have to have job jobs or were you making money with music? Before the air force, I was a linkman on a surveying team and I was a draftsman for a surveyor and, uh, and I was a musician and I made most of my money playing music. And then it, and after the air force, I came back, I had the GI bill and mm-hmm. I play around Los Angeles and make a little money. And, uh, and I also heard about this thing where you could you could get signed by a publisher and they'd give you a weekly salary. So uh, so I got signed first to Bones Howe, who produced the Fifth Dimension, and uh, and he was the engineer on the Mamas and Papas records. And anyhow, I got signed to his publishing company for a year, and they paid me fifty dollars a week, and they also paid me ten dollars for every lead sheet that I did. So and I was writing you know two or three songs a week, so I would turn in thirty dollars worth of songs every week. So I was making you know, roughly three or $400 a month from the publishing. And I was getting a GI Bill and I was singing. So I, I, I never had a job. You know, I always had a nice, nice place to live in a sports car. How did you <laughs> learn? How did you learn to write and read music? Oh, I, well, did... I, I, went, to, in I went to college. In college. Yeah, okay. yeah I, I studied orchestration and arranging in college. Mm-hmm. So, so prior to that, you were doing everything by ear? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And once I got out of college, I, I, I never wrote anything down again. Really? Well, you know, I mean, I, I can play all the instruments and I can hear the parts. So it's faster just to turn on the machine and record them than it is to sit down and write them out. And then, you know, if somebody wants to learn them, I can write it out for them. But I, you know, and plus I now work with people that are so good. I don't tell them what to play. You know, Chad Watson, you ever heard, heard him play uh, bass? Chad's. Before? Played in my living room. Love Chad. Yeah, he's spectacular. You know, I'm not going to tell that guy what to play. You know, I'm just thankful he wants to play with me. You know, Scott Bredman playing percussion. He's fabulous. Mm-hmm. You know, and and the keyboard players I've had, Michael O'Mardian, uh, John Jarvis. You know, these are world class pianists. So and Larry Carlton playing lead guitar. What am I going to tell these people? You know? Fantastic. So so James, where when did it go from being picking up a few dollars here and there to where you were touring and opening for all these incredible people. How did that start for you? Well, when, when in my junior year of college out at Cal State Northridge, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, just as I finished the the year, uh, I got a, a nibble from a record label called Wooden Nickel that was part of uh, RCA. And so I went down and talked to them, and and, uh, and they signed me to a deal. So I didn't go back to college. I didn't finish. I never took my senior year because I thought, well, I can, I can always get a degree, but I'm only going to be a young guy trying to get a record deal now. So uh, I signed with them in, I think, July. I went in the studio in August. And it's so funny. I was in love with this girl, uh, Claudia, my, my second wife, and uh, she was going to school in Santa Cruz. So I literally went into to Beverly Hills, to the offices, signed the deal, came home, and rented a truck and moved to Santa Cruz because that's where she was going to school. And I called them and I said, well, I, you know, I live in, you know, want to hear a funny story about that. Yes. Uh, I, I rented, uh, I went to rent a truck to move all my stuff from Silver Lake, which is where I lived, mm-hmm. to Santa Cruz. And uh, I said to the guy, I'm going to drive to Santa Cruz. He says, oh, no, you got, you got to uh, reserve a truck like that weeks in advance. I said, oh. So, and my, my time was up. I had to get out of the house in Silver Lake. So I went to another truck rental and I said, I want to, I'm moving the guy. I said, where are you moving? I said, Silver Lake to Glendale. He said, okay. So I took the truck, drove back to my house, loaded up everything I owned. My pal, Don Dunn, who wrote uh, Hitchcock Railway for Joe Cocker. Uh, Don and I drove, loaded my entire house up in this truck, drove mm-hmm. to Santa Cruz, unloaded the truck, slept for an hour, and then drove the truck back because I could only have the truck for one day. And and uh, oh and on when we when we woke up in Santa Cruz for an hour, I said, uh, "We're going to need a little bump to stay awake on this drive." So he broke out some toot, and we did a little that, and we got very festive. You know? <laughs> and we jumped in the car and we started driving back to Los Angeles. Well, I now had a big empty moving van and. By the time I got to Salinas, I picked up three hitchhikers and then it got to be a thing. So I picked up every single hitchhiker between Santa Cruz and Los Angeles. And I put them in. And when you and back then uh, in Santa Barbara, the 101 turned into surface streets for a while. For like 10 blocks, you were driving with red lights. And there used to be hundreds of people hitchhiking there because traffic had to stop so i i I was like a vacuum cleaner i just sucked up every hitchhiker going so get in i'm yelling get in and and i had like i'm not like 25 or 30 people in the back of the truck then we got back to la and i drove them all to where they were going and then i turned in the truck wow that's a ticket to heaven right there (laughs) yeah how'd you get back up to santa cruz do you have a car oh yeah i had my i left my car down here Mm -hmm. you know so i just i drove that back after i slept some more because I was away. Okay, so now you're in. You're, oh right. So now you're in Santa Cruz. How'd you start playing well, the music, making uh, the money? You, you know, I, I went over to the local high schools and I said, I'm a recording artist, and if you'd like me to do a show, a music thing for the kids, I'd be happy to do one. You know, for free, just to. So I did a couple of guitar seminars and a couple of concerts, and uh, and then and meanwhile, my record was coming out, and uh, my record president was friends with a guy named Fred Bolander who happened to have just left uh, Marvin jo- Josephson's big agency and uh, I forget what it was, huge agency, mm-hmm. and started Monterey Peninsula Artists. So uh, I went down to Monterey and I met Fred and we hit it off. We've been friends for 50 years. And so for the next eight years, every time that somebody famous was coming through, I was the opening act, you know? I went, I mean, I played all over the country with all kinds of famous people. And then 
Bill Graham's people really liked me, and and they gave me all kinds of work. I mean, I, that's how I got with Stephen Wright. You know, they they, they so called t- up and said, you know, we finally have an act that's perfect for you. You know, and so I I became Stephen Wright's opening act for three years. Now, what did that mean? You're the perfect opening because he's a comedian and he's a minimalist. How? Why was that such a great combination? Well, because I tell on stage, uh, I don't think you've ever seen a real concert of mine. Maybe you have. Uh, I know I've done things, but but I do a lot of uh, stories and yes, and, you do. And some of them are kind of uh, uh, outside, you know, mm-hmm. stories and. Uh, so when when I would open for, I mean, he had me opening for, Bill Graham had me opening for all kinds of people, and I always did okay, but when he put me with a comedian, I killed that audience, you know, because wow. I not only sing my ass off and play, but I'm really funny. Probably can't yes, tell you, from this interview, but trust yes, me. Yes, you are. I know, you know that. I'm really yes. funny, and, and mm-hmm. so it, it was a perfect, uh, it was just Those were your people. Story. They got you. Yeah, they really did, you know, mm-hmm. and to this day, Stephen... Stephen is another one of the most generous people I've ever worked with. He, I, I, he was fantastic to me, and he has been in a row, even even to do the, uh, the interview, you know, for the documentary. He did it on his phone because we couldn't get out to Block Island and, uh, and you know, shoot him with a crew. So, so yeah. what was it like to open for we, Bill Cosby? I mean. We didn't know the truth about him back then. So no, how was he to work with? He, he was he was great to me. I, the fact that I had a black bass player at the time might have helped because he liked that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. he, he liked that, that I was working with somebody of color and, mm-hmm. and that I loved. I mean, Terry Morgan is his name. He's from Seattle and he's a fantastic person, a basic bass player and one of my dear friends, you know, and, and he mm-hmm. could see that. So I think he liked that. Uh, but also, when, when he got to the gig, Bill Cosby, he got mm-hmm. out of a limo, and he had two girls on it, one on each arm. And he walked into the place with, he these, did. with these two girls. And, and I knew he was married, so I thought, this is how naive I am. I thought that he had two escorts so that women wouldn't bother him because it looked like he was already taken <laughs> because he was married and you know, <laughs> didn't want to. That's what I thought was going on. It, it turns out I... I might have been wrong about that. You might have been wrong about that. Yeah, but he was he was he was very gracious and uh, and put on a great show, you know. So I'm sorry that I'm truly sorry that someone with his gifts didn't didn't have the self worth to the sense of self worth to to mm-hmm. not do what he did. You know, he was Bill Cosby. Mm-hmm. He was rich. He was handsome. He was successful. He didn't have to do anything mm-hmm. to to have women like him. And because I mean. You know, I'm I'm none of those things, and uh, women have always been wonderfully generous to me. You know, so <laughs> yeah. Of fact, to... what, what whatever class and style I have achieved, I learned all of that from women. You know, I didn't learn anything worthwhile from guys except guitar. <laughs> you know, and that from watching people and going, how did you do that? You know. Um. Somebody asked if you have perfect pitch. Who asked? No, that? I don't. I have uh, what they call relative pitch. I can, ah, I can, what's the difference, James? Well, perfect pitch is that you hear a note and you know flat out, you know absolutely that it's an A or an E. Mm. I mm-hmm. I can remember where E is. Uh, uh, that's an E. Mm. Mm-hmm. But uh, relative pitch means that that even if you're not A four forty, whatever wherever you are, sonically, I can sing to that. I I can I can keep pitch to whatever 
whatever tone you happen to choose. But I can't like call it every note. Oh, that's a D. That's a C sharp. I see. Yeah. But they they actually people with perfect pitch actually know and and they also are are tuned to A440, for instance. And if something is A444 for 444 hertz instead of 440 hertz, it makes it makes them crazy. You know, that's what happened to Schumann. You know, he couldn't stop hearing an F sharp. Went nuts. And so this does not happen to you, which is a nice thing. You don't no, go nuts. It does. I, well, I, I haven't gone nuts yet. You haven't gone but nuts. It's early. You know. <laughs> so I don't want to give away things that are in the documentary that people will hear, but can you give us a, a couple of chestnuts that uh, perhaps aren't in the documentary, or maybe one that is as a tease? Uh, yeah, I, I told a story about how I got the Stephen Wright tour. Uh, so it. I can tell you that that this is in the documentary. Uh, I, I had gotten back to the United States from Holland, mm -hmm. and there was a call from Bill Graham. Uh, I was playing in, in uh, New Hampshire, and I checked my machine, and, and Bill Graham had called and said, I've got the perfect guy for you to open for. If you can be in uh, San Francisco at the Fox Warfield Theater by Tuesday night. Well, I got that message on Monday morning in New Hampshire. So I drove like a maniac to Boston, and I said, I need the next flight to L.A. Mm -hmm. The next flight to L.A. happened to be 11 o'clock that night. So I sat around the airport all day, got on that flight, flew to L.A., uh, took a cab to my house, picked up my car, sneaked into my apartment, which I had sublet because I was broke, and, and I took a bunch of LPs and threw them in the car, and then I drove from L.A. to San Francisco, getting there at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and, uh, and I went in and said, where's the dressing room? And I went to sleep for an hour. Then I came out and did a sound check. Then I went back in the room, and I turned off the lights, and I just played my guitar until they said, you're on. And I went on and did the show. I got a standing ovation. I killed the audience, and I come wow. off stage, and I'm feeling pretty good about myself, you know? And there's this bemused, curly-headed guy standing there, and he goes, you're brilliant. And I said, well, thank you. Who are you? And he goes, I'm Stephen Wright. And I said, oh, well, well thanks, you know, thanks for letting me on your show. So then his, his road manager, uh, who was also his agent, uh, a guy named Lou Viola, came into the room, and he said, James, sure. you know Lou? Well, I, I know of Lou, yes. Oh, okay. So, mm -hmm. so uh, he said, James, Stephen really liked you. We're doing five more dates, and uh, we'd like to give them to you. And I thought to my, I've never, ever, been this smart, but I was this time. I knew that I just killed an audience. I was the unannounced opening act and I got a standing ovation. So I knew wow. that this was my audience, you know? Mm -hmm. So I said, I can do one, two, three, and five. I can't do four. Because I thought if I do three dates and this happens three more times, I don't, oh. care. I don't care who they get as the opening act for the fourth date. When I come back for the fifth date, they're gonna give me the tour. And I walked in for that fifth date, and Stephen said, you're my guy. I said, what happened? He said, some girl turned the audience into a mob. <laughs> wow. Whoever the opening act was, did, she didn't do great. So they gave me a tour, which lasted. That was so ballsy of you. Well, you know what? I was so broke. I, I was living, I was paying my credit cards with credit cards. I owed them oh. 30 grand, and, uh, and I owed them so much money, but I kept paying the minimum. That, that American Express sent me a gold American Express card. And that's how I went to Europe to see Evelina, my wife, because I thought, well, I'm so broke. What the hell? I'm going to Europe and see this woman I love, and then I'll come back home and I'll 
I'll declare bankruptcy and move in with my parents. That was my big plan. <laughs> wow. Well, how old were you when this was going on? <laughs> 38. <laughs> wow. I thought my life was over, you know, but I, I really wanted, I didn't want to lose Evelina. I thought I have to see her. It's just going to go away. Cause you know, she'd been, we've been separated a year now, you know? So I did that. And then, and then Stephen kept giving me more money. I paid off my, the credit cards in four or five months. I paid off totally wow. off and I've never, ever run up a debt. I pay my credit cards every month, no matter what it is. You know, if I have to eat peanut butter and apples for a couple of days, I don't care, but I pay off all my credit cards, you know, it's a good it's practice. I mean, I still love American Express. I use them a lot, but you know, if you don't pay it's it, the interest is 29.27%. We used to call that usury when, uh, when we were a Christian nation, you know, isn't that <laughs> back so, before the orange turd took over and ruined everything. <clears throat> so, all right. So Evelina, so you met, I, I know I asked you this question early on. Now I don't remember the answer. You met Evelina how? I met her at the, at my place. She was uh, Matthew McCauley's au pair. Right. She was the au pair. And so now you had a thing. And then why were you separated for a year? Because she, she was from Holland. She went back. And home. she had to go back. Yeah. She, and, yeah. She had to go back and she got a, you know, she had a nice job there and she was having a life there. And uh, so I went to see her and then we kept it up for another year. And then. Had you convince her to come here? Uh, I didn't. She called me one day and said, I'm coming to the United States. I said, here? <laughs> she said, yes. And I, I said, oh, I said, well, you know what? Let's, uh, okay, let's both start saving a lot of money so we can make this transition easy. And she said, no, no, I'm coming. I'm coming December the uh, 1st. And I said, well, or December 10th. I said, well, in that case, um, don't fly to Los Angeles. I said, you fly to New York City and I'll pick you up and drive you home. So I booked a tour across the country and, uh, and then I picked her up in New York City and we, I took her down to DC and I took her, you know, took her to New York and I took her all over the country and took her over to Chicago. And then we drove down the Mississippi River. We stayed at the Maison du Puy in New Orleans. Then we spent Christmas with my parents, sleeping in separate bedrooms because my parents were raging Christians. And then, uh, and then we drove across the desert to, to LA and then she stayed with me until we got married. That's a beautiful story. And but that was, was, it was her yeah. idea, but I got to tell you, driving her home was so fun because I thought she's from this little tiny country, Holland, you know, she, she can't imagine how big, because you, I mean, you can drive to Marseille and whatever it is, eight hours, you know, from, from, but this was a, this was a three week trip across America. Great fun. You know, my daughter is at the Grand Canyon right now. Her and her beau just drove from New York and they'll be here tomorrow. And they're, she's moving back to LA. And the last time you oh, did nice. this show with me, she was working the camera and she was about to move to New York to go wow. start college. I with, what was that, two years ago, three years ago? Four years ago. Was that four years ago? Wow. Four years ago. Yep. Is that when Sheila was there? Sheila. Sheila E. Escovito? Oh no, that's when you did Women Who Write. That was even more years ago. Oh. I'm talking about when you did this show, when you did the talk show with me. Oh, yes. oh that's and, right. I remember, yeah, she did run the camera, I remember. And she ran the camera and she was about to go to NYU to, to go to college and now she's coming back. And so here we go, we go full circle. So they just did the this. cross country trip just And, and you and I haven't changed a bit. We look exactly <laughs> we the same. We haven't changed a bit. But look what you've been through. Okay, so 
what you went through happened with your with your tongue just prior to COVID. How how much before? Like a year before? How much before? No, uh, uh, not even. November of 2019 was the operation, and March 13th of 2020 was the last date I did before uh, I couldn't go on the road anymore until they shut us down. You know. So now, did you have a lot of stuff booked that got canceled? Yeah, I had I had a number of things that that got canceled, and I to tell you the truth, I just canceled my my New York dates uh, for for October because uh, I talked to the club owners and they said, you know, things are still not not really right, and and a lot of people are not coming to the shows. Mm. I mean, they, there's a lady named Christine Lavin who is utterly brilliant. I know who that is. You don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay, and she was doing a show, and and she always sells out. And they mm-hmm. only had a couple of tickets sold for the show wow. week before the gig. And he said, you know what, man, I think people are still scared. Can we change your dates to March? And I said, or April. And I said, sure. So I changed those dates to April. And, and so I didn't, uh, you know, I, only dates I had this year were in se- was September. I played, you know, four or five, four dates in September. So, so let's talk about how COVID impacted your life. So you, you were on the man, you were healing anyway. Um, what did you do? How, how did you and Evelina handle? I'll tell you the truth. I am so sorry that it, that it happened to this country, but I have never spent so much time at home since high school. I loved it. I really enjoyed being home. I built a uh, long stone. We own a couple of acres up here in this mountain Mm -hmm. and I built a long stone wall on the road, uh, for the thing I planted, uh, a dozen pine trees. I built a garden shed for the, for the thing. I learned to make all kinds of uh, dishes, like, you know, uh, hummus and tabbouleh. And, and I just learned to cook all kinds of stuff. I became, a, I'm really a great cook now. I'm not pretty good. Wow. I'm really good. So I learned that. I wrote a whole bunch of songs. I mean, I, I recorded a bunch of stuff. I, I made a documentary. I, I, you know, worked on the house. I, I uh, lost, I went on a special immune building diet and lost 35 pounds. Okay, let's talk about this because uh, I'm, I'm still trying to lose all the way. So what was that, what, what's that diet? How'd you do it? Evelina did a lot, she's like the internet maven. And she said, there are, there are things that you can do to help rebuild your immune system because if it wasn't compromised, you wouldn't have gotten this thing. Because ah. everybody has that virus sitting there, but I couldn't fight it off. You know? Wow. What had, did you, excuse me for interrupting. Did you take supplements? Did you eat health what, prior to the illness? Oh, I've, what, I've always, I've always been a, a careful eater. I, you know, I eat what does fresh, that mean? Food, fresh food, uh, fruit. And, and I, I, I do take vitamins, but not regularly because I, I don't think your body wants to get all those vitamins every day in pill form. I think that uh, it's better to eat the food and have your body extract it i think and this is based upon no knowledge whatsoever just and also your immune system was compromised because you got sick so we're not listening to you james yeah okay (laughs) yeah so what i what i did was Mm -hmm. uh we we took all sugar out of my diet we took all dairy out of my diet all white carbs all alcohol and all meat so those five things i took out of my diet from no, for November, December, January, February, March, and April. What about gluten? Everybody's gluten crazy. Well, you eating gluten? I, white carbs. I didn't have any bread either. I had even, no bread. Even whole, you didn't have whole wheat or anything like no, that? No, I had no bread. No, whatsoever. no bread. 
So, so yeah. So you by took the observing glute, yeah. those those five things for six months, I lost thirty five pounds. Wow. And uh, I went down to like one sixty, which I thought it it wasn't a good look for me. I looked like I I was hungry, you know. <laughs> uh, so I I started. I called the doctor. And I said, look. I always have martinis on Friday nights and I, I've been doing it since I was 21. And how about if I, can I go back to having martinis? He said, yeah, you can eat whatever you want. So I started having martinis on Friday nights and I started eating meat when I feel like it. I still don't eat meat very often. Mm-hmm. Once or twice a month, you know, I have meat. I mean, but, but now I have a piece the size of my palm. I can't finish it. It's, that's, you know, wow. and I have gained, I, I, I'm now at 175 from, from 160. Well, 162 I was, so now I'm 175, and I, and I'm I like that weight, you know, and I can get into clothes I've had since college because I don't throw anything away. <laughs> so are you so are you still no sugar? No, 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 no. No, I have honey in my coffee. I have. Oh, that's another thing is I went to the doctor and I said, how come? I, I mean, I'm eating handfuls of nuts. I'm eating popcorn at 10 o'clock at night. I'm. How come I'm not gaining any of this weight back? And he said, mm-hmm. well, if you can maintain that diet for that long your body, it's like, it's like a computer, it reboots, and it, it, it resets itself. And, and it reset itself at this weight, which I've managed to maintain for two years. Wow. So you can eat, I'm sure you don't overdo the nuts and the popcorn, though. I had an entire bowl of popcorn myself last night at 1030. I eat nuts all the time. I, uh, but I, I, I mean, I eat smaller portions of everything, you know, mm-hmm. I know that when I go out, uh, it, it's, it's hard to, I mean, when you go to a restaurant, they always get, you know, it's not very good, but there's plenty of it. You know, they always <laughs> like, to, you know, so, so when you, so when COVID hit, you did all of these great things around the house. I, all this cooking. Yes. I too cooked more than I ever have in my life. I think, um, were you going, were, were you homebound? I mean, you're, you're up there in the country where you, did you go to supermarkets? How did you get your groceries? What'd you do? Well, uh, I, I started wearing a mask instantly. My mm-hmm. wife bought two masks, right? You know, I mean, when I came home on the 13th, they closed it on the 14th or whatever it was. You know, we had masks on Monday. And mm-hmm. uh, and also up here, you could go to the market, because I'm 75, mm-hmm. uh, or, or I guess over 70, you could go to the market at like between 7.30 and 9 o'clock. There was nobody in there but you, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, they said old people come and shop in the mornings, you know? So... Uh, I did that for a while and I used to wash all the groceries, you know, I mean, oh, yeah. hand goods. I mean, I mm. literally was like, yes. And then I got my vaccines, which I wholeheartedly believe in. I think that anyone who is uh, against vaccines is an absolute idiot. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact is that those vaccines, they didn't just decide to do them on Tuesday and hand them to us on Friday. They have been working on vaccines for all these viruses mm-hmm. for decades. Mm-hmm. Talk to any real scientist and, and they'll tell you that they didn't, you know, they, they may have adapted a little bit, but they already had vaccines that were not going to turn your child into a encephalitic idiot, you know? So anyhow, I took the vaccines and uh, I, mm-hmm. I'm careful. I still wear a mask when I go out. I wash my hands all the time. And, uh, Washing hands is so important. It is. <laughs> it, is. it is. Because you know what? Also, people think that biting their fingers is how they get it. That's not actually it. It turns out that you have a lot of uh, enzymes and, and stuff in your saliva that, mm-hmm. that will protect you from a lot of stuff. But people touch their eyes. Right. And, and there is nothing 
except uh, you know lubricant to protect. in mm -hmm. your eyes. So mm -hmm. you can put anything in your in your uh, system by touching your eyes. So washing your hands really keeps that down. I mean, the, the you know you'll notice that the flu season for the past two years has not been like it was because everybody Absolutely. was wearing a mask and washing their hands and also not interacting very much yeah yeah that so yeah, so what does your life look like now james do you guys have you gone do you go to restaurant what, what what are you doing now i go to restaurants i go to the market when i feel like it i uh i have uh i get together with some guys and play music every week we have a uh kind of a, a dining club once a month we get together but everybody is uh <laughs> everybody is masked vaccinated and liberal you know what <laughs> i mean i, I the, the fact of the matter is i don't interact with any republicans okay yeah. <laughs> yes. well, that think, you know of well, well it's it's pretty easy to tell you know or a republican they they have that vacant stare you know <laughs> do you eat indoors at restaurants because i haven't done that yet I yeah, doing that. I, I do. Yeah. But the restaurants, there's a lot of social distancing in the restaurants, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But and, I, and so, I, I, mean, I played the sculptor of Vineyard on Sunday, huge crowd of people outdoors. And, uh, and I didn't wear a mask because I, you can't sing with them. I mean, I guess you could, but mm. I didn't sing with a mask on, you know? And then I, I, uh, I did sell some CDs without wearing a mask when I think about it. But I washed myself. I also have a spray that I put on my face. What kind of spray on your face? Something Evelina got me. It smells like cedar and it's it's all these this disinfectant stuff and I just spray it because it you know hits my nose and my beard and I thought maybe it discourages anybody any any little Boogers. And well boogers. not boogers, but yeah. Yeah. Those things. things. So so and have you done indoor gigs since you've started playing again? Yes, I played in Ojai uh, at the Underground Exchange, a wonderful club that Bernie Larson runs. Bernie used to be the guitar player in uh, El Rayo X with David Lindley, and he and his wife Cassidy have a great room there. And I played, and everybody, and every single person in the audience was wearing a mask. Oh. You know? Yeah, but and then uh, what happened? But then they have a drink or they have food, and then well, there was, there were actually was no food. Mm. It was just a concert hall, and they didn't. Uh, because of COVID, they didn't sell anything like that. Ah. I mean, you know, they usually have wine and beer and, and stuff, but they didn't, uh, they didn't sell anything, as I recall. Cool. We all wore masks. All right. Well, good. So, so do you have stuff lined up? I know you're not going to New York till later, but. Yeah, I'm, I'm playing the Tehachapi App Apple Festival. It happens every year. I'm playing that on the uh, Saturday, the 16th. And then I am going to Illinois in November. And playing some dates and i'm also uh there's a song um, kind of a songwriting camp that happens up here mm -hmm. uh, the first weekend in november and i'm and i'm you know on the uh, the staff there i'll be teaching people how to orchestrate songs and how to write songs and, and i guess i'll be wearing a mask so yeah I'm, yeah I'm still doing stuff but i have nothing else after that for the rest of the year dan and i are going out in january and uh, and promote all wood and lead and then I have dates that are starting to fill in, you know, next year. But th that also may change, you know? Yeah, we're subject to change, I guess. How about yeah. playing, Can uh, before we go, can you play us something from All Wood and Lead and give oh, us a little I can't. case? You uh, can't. No, uh, I, I did the record 
I played everything before the operation in November of 2019, mm-hmm. and I haven't actually played anything. Dan and I are going to get together in January and and work up the stuff, but I I can't even remember any of the songs. I mean, yeah, I, well, because you weren't. A, I'm not a Zeppelin. I wasn't a Zeppelin person. No, no, and, and yeah. actually, yeah. I mean, I I literally you won't you won't recognize even one of those songs as a Led Zeppelin song. They sound because I I didn't know their catalog, and I just listened once, and I just but you know I'm just going to do what I want and I'll use their words so that's what I did and mostly love, their their melodies you know I, well you do, you do that with all of it well so play anything tell us what it is and play whatever pleases you okay oh yeah this I wrote a musical called uh, straight from the heart that my sister starred in great singer This is a song called uh, When Love Comes Knocking Around. I think I might have played it for you before. You have. When love comes knocking around When love comes knocking around around You better be When love comes knocking around When love comes knocking around when love comes knocking around, you better be there rocking. When love comes a knocking, when love comes knocking around, like a child that I wishing well, you've been wishing with all your might for a charm that can break the spell that's been keeping your heart locked up so tight. When love comes knocking around When love comes knocking around You better be there rocking When love comes a-knocking When love comes knocking around Who can say what life holds in store Cause that's a secret no one knows But the joy we're creating for is the key that can open any door or when love comes knocking around when love comes knocking around and around you better be them rocking when love comes a knocking when love comes around You better be there 
time to begin again So close your eyes Count to ten Kick the can Holly oxen free Be as ready As ready You can be When love comes around When love comes around Yeah, you better be there Rocking when love comes a-knocking When love comes around hey you better be there rocking you better be there no don't you be out walking around and around round and around and around when love comes knocking around <laughs> that is a gorgeous song that is a gorgeous song and someone just said i hope i can find it on spotify but we don't want you to buy it on spot get it on spotify you know know what as long as they listen to it i guess that's the important thing you know and i gotta say vicky you are more beautiful than ever it's just (laughs) amazing i was looking at you while i was singing i was thinking how in the world does she do it you must have like a painting in the attic you know yeah well i have i have really good lighting and a lot of filters and you know it's all it's it's working for you baby it's working for you the pandemic's been very good for aging because you can manipulate the shit out of it (laughs) (laughs) james i adore you and you know i was looking you know this has been going on we've been doing stuff together for over a decade yeah um And it's just been, you just get better and better. Your voice sounds as good, if not better than ever, which I'm, really I'm so I'm really thrilled blessed. about. And you look fantastic. You, There's absolutely no sign there's been anything going on. I'm so grateful and happy Me to too. see I that. Me too. I feel like I'm so lucky, you know? And, and it was, if Evelina had not said, get an endoscopy, God knows wow. what would have happened. How know? long did it take between the endoscopy and you starting to feel something was wrong? Oh, that about uh, 18 hours. Oh. Yeah, I, I literally called the, the guy that did the endoscopy. I said, hey, I don't know what you did, but you messed up my throat. It's burning. I'm having a hard time swallowing. He said, I didn't do anything. I said, look, something is wrong. You know, mm-hmm. you, you must have banged into something when you put the camera down my throat. He said, no, no, we, we were so careful. We didn't do anything. And I said, well, something's wrong. So I went to another doctor. Then I had to call the first doctor back and say, you know what? You, you didn't do anything wrong. Turns out I've got a lump of cancer on my tongue. You know? Holy shit. Well, thank God uh, Evelina had that premonition. Yeah. You know what else, though, Vicky? I never, ever uh, embraced the, the victim thing, the poor me thing, the why me. I never went through any of those things. What I decided was I would try to get rid of it, and if it didn't work, I would die. Either way, wow. I was okay with it. But it was no, it was no I, I just didn't go through a thing with it. You know, I why think do you, my why do you think that really is? Helped. Yeah. I I, well, you know what? When they were rolling me into the into the theater, the, uh, you know, I hadn't had the anesthesia yet, mm-hmm. and and I was thinking, well, I I wonder if this is it. You know, I mean, uh, sometimes they open people up and they go, Mother of God, it's he's riddled with cancer. Just sew him up and send him home. You know, so I, there was that, or else they're in there cutting something. Oops, cut his carotid. What is it? Carotid artery. Sorry. Oops. You know, I mean, anything can go wrong and you die. So I thought this might be it, but wow, I've, I've had a pretty great life. You know, I mean, I, I can't complain. And so, <laughs> so I just, I don't know, I think, but I think that that attitude really helped. It's, I think it did. And also the fact that you had this goal to play that show just 
a couple of months later probably speeded up your recovery, it sounds like. Well, that, that helped uh, get my voice back, yeah, because I thought, I'm, I want to do this show. I mean, I, I couldn't even sing at all until about the second week of December. You know, I mean, I didn't have any solid, I had like a feeding tube for, I don't know, eight or 10 days. And then these little mushy packets they gave us, it was caca, you know, terrible. So I didn't really eat until uh, Thanksgiving was my first actual meal. And I had, it was hard to swallow. I can remember seeing you, I guess it must've been online. It must've been, because I don't think I saw you in person in that time. But I know that when I first saw you after your surgery and you were, you were, too skinny and your voice sounded a little concerning and you're a miracle. You're an absolute miracle. I'm a lucky dude. A sight to behold and to hear. Well, thanks for having me. I I love doing this. I'm always available for you. You know, I love that James. And and you stepped in very much at the last minute uh, on a cancellation and I'm so grateful. And you were on my list to call anyway. So I'm, I'm glad it was speeded up. Okay. So tell everybody, the name of the documentary, how oh, they yes. can find all your music, and let's give everything them one more is note. on my website com. The the documentary is called "The Opening Act: The Extraordinary Journey of James Lee Stanley." The new album, the new uh, duet album with Dan Navarro, is called "All Wood and Lead," and there is in fact an allwoodandlead.com page. And uh, my last solo album is called "Without Susie." But all, all 35 of my albums are available on my website and on all, all the streaming services that uh, exist. And Fantastic. I also have a, a blog called Dada Musicata. It's the, you don't have to sign up for it. There's no, there's no anything. You just go in there and get it. There's a search engine, and I've written about 700 articles. And it's just everything that I can think of that might help you follow your own artistic muse. It's Dada wow. Musicata. Spell D-A-T-A. it for us. Music A-T-A. Dada Music. ATA, datamusicata.com. And just, yeah, there's like everything I could think of that could possibly help you is there and it's free. Fantastic. Thank you so much, James. I adore you. I can't wait to hear the album and to see you and Dan play it will be thrilling. And um, he's a great singer. He is a great singer. He's a great singer. And okay. I love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. Thanks again.